God, tonight is a night um, where we sometimes don't know what to do with tonight. God, and I pray that tonight you would remind us of the price you paid for us, for our redemption. Uh, God, we pray tonight that, um, God, that you would be honored and glorified. Remind us of your love, remind us of your mercy, and remind us of your sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good evening. I'm glad you're here. My name is Kobe Wilbanks. I'm one of the elders of, of the Grove here. Um, tonight is a difficult night for us. Tonight we both remember, and to some degree we praise the story of the cross. Good Friday is both a dark day, a solemn day, but also a day of great hope. I want you to hear that tonight. Tonight is a day of, Good Friday is a day of great hope. We are confronted not only with the absolute worst part of humanity, but at the same time, we see the glorious grace of God's eternal plan for our redemption. It's a good Friday. Join with me. We're going to start in... Um, like Mark John read, John chapter 19. If you've been with us here in the Grove for any length of time, you know we've been going through the book of John. Tonight is no different. We're going to walk through uh, the book of John, walk through the story of the cross. Let's begin by reminding ourselves, though, of the purpose of John. Do you remember why we've been doing John and why John wrote the book of John? It's actually in chapter 20. Right? And John wrote the book of John, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John writes his gospel to encourage people to believe, to persuade his readers to believe in Jesus. Tonight, I invite you, as we look at the story of the cross, I invite you to believe Jesus is the Christ. Not only with your head, we invite you to believe with your heart so that you may have life. If you are a believer, I invite you to see and to hear the reality of the cross. Remind yourself of the sacrifice that was made to bring you life, to have your affections stirred for your creator. First part of the passage we read tonight. Pilate writes an inscription over Jesus on the cross. Inscription says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I find it interesting that there are some um, Jewish leaders there who, who pay special attention to words and they're super critical of the words and they get a little upset and they say, no, 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 that's not right. You shouldn't say Jesus is King of the Jews but, but this man claimed to be king of the Jews, right? Pilate says, no, what I've written, I have written. It's almost like God had this thing in the bag, isn't it? Think about this. Think about this. When the world seems so out of control, God is still sovereign. God and Jesus is still king. 
The Jews are crucifying the Messiah, God's chosen one on a very public cross. And we have a written inscription in three languages, the three prominent languages, as if to say, this man is king. The Jews tried to change that. God would have nothing of it. When the world seems out of control, God is still sovereign. Jesus is still king. I'm a visual person. I got to see things. I want you, as we think of the cross, do you remember this crown? We looked at this crown. We had this very crown when, during, during uh, Christmas. We're celebrating the birth of our king. Tonight, I want to put this up here so you have a reminder that Jesus is king. Jesus, God is sovereign, and he is king. So we move on in the passage. John tells us that the soldiers at the cross begin to divide up his garments. Each soldier gets a piece or a part, and then they come to the tunic. And the tunic, it's, it's a solid garment. The soldiers don't know what to do. So they decide they're going to cast lots to see who gets this spoil, gets this uh, treasure. Seems to be just a random act from heartless Roman uh, soldiers. But is it? This is the first time we see John in this passage mention this. This was to fulfill scripture. You're going to see this four times tonight. John says, what happened happened to fulfill scripture. And we're going to actually go and read those scriptures. Remember, John's goal is that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. So he's writing and encouraging and persuading his readers to believe. When we encourage and persuade, don't we cite authority? That's what John's doing here. He's reaching back to the Psalms to say, hey, just like David wrote a thousand years ago, this is what happened to fulfill that prophecy. So I want you to turn with us as, as Bethany comes up to read. Bethany's going to read Psalm chapter 22. And I want you to follow along. I want you to think about the words written by King David a thousand years before this happens and see how they apply to King Jesus. Psalm 22, 1 through 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Make their mouth, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My heart is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. 
Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So a thousand years before Good Friday, around a thousand years before Good Friday, we have King David writing a, a, a psalm, um, what would later be used in, um, for the um, people of Israel as their, as their worship songbook. Um, and King David is writing these words. Did you catch these? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was despised by the people. He was mocked. Hey, you trust in God. Let God save you. Strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws. Evildoers encircle him. They cast lots for his clothing. Does that sound familiar? It's interesting to me that a thousand years before, God is orchestrating the events of Good Friday. When the world seems out of control, God is still sovereign and Jesus is still king. My friends, God is higher than us. What part of your life seems out of control? Is it relationships? Is it your work? Is it your home? Is it your friends? Is it kids? What part seems out of control tonight? I just want to remind us, in the middle of the chaos... Invite yourself to the cross and be reminded that our creator is sovereign and he is king. In the middle of what's going on on Good Friday, to the death of Jesus, the disciples are scattered. A, 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 a tiny infant faith in Christianity seems to be just snuffed out. Yet on that night, God knew it was going to happen. He even in a sense, a thousand years ago, wrote out the script of what was going to happen on Good Friday. He knows. He hears. He can deliver us from what's going on in your life and in my life. Remind yourself, no matter what's going on around us, he is still king. Did you notice something else, though, in that psalm? Not only was it that God is sovereign, right? But, but think about this. There's a pattern of suffering and God's deliverance, okay? First, you had this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This idea of God, come rescue me. And then the next part of that psalm, David is writing, God, you are holy. Our people trusted you and you delivered them. Then it moves on and he goes back to, I'm despised and I'm mocked. I'm at the end of my rope, so to speak, he cries out for God's help. And in the last part of the psalm, you see him praising God for what? For his rescue and for his deliverance. What do you think King David would have been thinking of when he reads those words? In, in you our fathers trusted and you delivered them. He's thinking of things like um, God's promise to Abraham. He's thinking of the Exodus where where the people of Israel are in slavery under Pharaoh and God sends Moses, literally delivers them out of Egypt. He's thinking of 
Joshua, the conquest of the land of Canaan, where they walk around Jericho's for seven days, and at the end of the day, the walls come crumbling down. King David is thinking about the faithfulness of his God and how God has delivered them before. You know what's interesting to me is that when the world is at its darkest, God is still in the business of accomplishing his purposes. The cross may look like it's out of control. It's at that very moment. God accomplishes his grand plan for redemption. You go back to the book of John. You keep reading. Jesus, now knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill scripture. Right? So this is the second time we see John reference scripture. I thirst. I have this jar full of sour wine that's there. Jesus receives the sour wine and what does he say? He says, it is finished. It is finished. This is not a cry of defeat. This is not like you and I would say, I'm done. I'm finished. I give up. This is not it. This is not a cry of defeat. Rather, this is a cry of completion. This is not surrender. This is Jesus. This is a victorious cry from Jesus. This is not failure. It is accomplishing all that God set out to do. In that moment, Jesus accomplished the will of the Father. When the world is the darkest, God accomplishes his purposes. Jesus is our deliverer. What is he delivering us from? My second visual for you. He's delivering us from dirty, nasty sin. And when you see that, that's just dark. Idea of, of Jesus is delivering us. On the cross, God is accomplishing his purpose of rescuing us from our filth, from our sin. Listen to what New Testament authors talk about when they say what happened on the cross. Listen to this. Hebrews 9.12. Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. A little later in Hebrews. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of all ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes a judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. In Ephesians, Paul writes, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And finally in Colossians, and you who were dead in your sin, and you who were dead in your sin, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our sins 
all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the world's darkest hour, Jesus dies on the cross when he says, it is finished. He is accomplishing the most merciful and gracious act in all of history. An innocent, righteous man pays our debt and dies for the ungodly. Ladies and gentlemen, it is finished. It's finished. What sin and guilt are we holding on to? Have you experienced the freedom that comes with forgiveness? Are you still carrying around a jar of dirty filth? Or have you rested and relied upon the gracious act of Christ on the cross? Hey, because of the cross, we don't have to perform anymore. Right? We don't have to be something we're not. We can't work or serve enough to pay back our debt. We can't do it. That debt's been paid. It's finished. We don't have to perform. We don't have to pretend. Your goodness is never good enough anyway. You know the irony of this uh, jar up here? You know what's in there? Iodine. You know what iodine is used for? It's an antiseptic. It's to clean things. No matter how clean you think you are, your sin is still there. It's still dirty. It's still filthy until the blood of Jesus comes and cleans it, wipes it away. It is finished. But there's more, right? We're like two-thirds of the way through this passage, and there's more. Let's go back and let's keep going. There's more good, good news. You go back to verse 31 and 37, and you read about it was the day of preparation, and so the Jews didn't want to leave the bodies on the cross anymore. And so they go around and they break the legs to hasten death in the two criminals. And they get to Jesus, and the legs, and he was already dead, so the legs weren't broken. This is where we see the third and the fourth parts where John references back to the Old Testament, right? At the end in verse 37, excuse me, verse 36, John writes this. It says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he references back and says, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Two more references. You know what the significance of his bones not being broken is? It references all the way back to Passover. Keep in mind, what week is this? Good Friday? This is a celebration of the Passover. The Passover was when God rescued, delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. Right? Do you remember how that happened? All the plagues. You get to the end of that plague, and the Lord literally is sending the angel of death. And he gives instructions to his people to say, look, the angel of death will pass over you if you take an animal, sacrifice that animal, put the blood on the doorpost. Think about that. Blood on the doorpost, resembling cross. Um, one of the instructions he gave 
uh, in Exodus was that the, the bones of that animal sacrifice were not to be broken. Later on in Numbers when they're already out, they're already, uh, they've already been rescued and uh, Moses is setting up like the, the, this Passover celebration to be followed for years and years and years. He reiterates it. The bones are not to be broken. Um, you know what animal they were to sacrifice, by the way? It was a lamb. We've been in John. If you go back to the beginning, the first chapter of John, John sees Jesus coming. And what does John call Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus here, by referencing back to the bones not being broken, Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. That means he's not just delivering you from, his, from your sin. He's not just delivering you from sin. But he is making you clean. He is purifying you. It's, it's, this filth is gone. And you're pure. You're clean. He didn't just pay your price. He, he erased it. Then the second part. This is where it gets really, really good. Christy's going to come read this, this second um, passage for us. It's out of Zechariah. And this is where scripture says, they will look on him who was pierced. Zechariah, if you're looking for it in your Bible, go to Matthew and go left two books. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to read, I think this is beautiful. Keep in mind this picture of our sin and God is cleansing us from that sin. Zechariah twelve ten, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when you look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 13, 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse from the sin and uncleanness. So look at that first part, 1210. And it says, uh, so, so Zechariah is prophesying, right? And so God is speaking through him. And so it's as if God is speaking, right? And he says, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. When they look on me, which is who? God. When they look on God, on whom they have pierced. When in human history has God been pierced? On the cross. Zechariah is writing this about 500 years before the cross. God is orchestrating that night, right? But then in chapter 13, the very, very first verse of that. Don't miss this. God's not just forgiving your sin, but he is paying the penalty for sin. In verse 13, or in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, a fountain opens to cleanse them from sin. Check this out, ladies and gentlemen. Your sin, this dirty, nasty sin that's right here. It's like God takes Jesus's purity Jesus' righteousness. And he literally pours it into you. 
removing your sin. He didn't just pay the price. He cleanses you. You're clean. You're holy. You are righteous. Listen to this in Colossians. I want you to see this in Colossians. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's you, right? Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's me too, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and me. Listen to how he describes you now. Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Ladies and gentlemen, it is finished. Your debt has been paid and you are cleansed. You are clean. In Christ, we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. God looks at you. He no longer sees that dirty, nasty filth. He sees the holy righteousness of his son, Jesus. Why then do we not live that way? Why do we still live in sin? Why do we live as if our life is, is filthy? I have a couple thoughts, or otherwise I wouldn't have asked the question, right? Number one, if you're not a believer, if you don't believe that Jesus came and died, paid that price on that cross for you, and God hasn't made you alive, you don't have the power over sin. You, you don't. No matter how hard you try, you don't have the power over sin, because it's not you, it's Christ. For those of us who do believe, we still struggle with that, right? Sometimes I think it's because our lives ignore the cross. We ignore Christ. We live our lives consumed by lesser things. And we don't even come and look to the cross. We deny the cross's power. For some of us, we're trying to fight sin on our own. You don't, you don't have the power either. Instead, running to Christ... Resting in his grace, we need to rely on his ability. The heart of the gospel is that we desperately need the power of Christ at work in our lives. Now, hey, remember, we're not there yet, right? This is not a if you sin at all kind of thing. The gospel is this. You've heard this before already, but not yet, right? That debt is paid. On the cross, your debt has been paid. There's still, there's still a working out of our salvation that happens, that's why we continually, repeatedly run to the cross. And Philippians, Paul recognizes that, right? I wanted to read the whole chapter of Philippians chapter 3. Um, after talking with Lance, uh, we kind of X'd that one. <laughs> but I want to challenge you to read Philippians chapter 3 because he talks about this. He talks about not having a righteousness of my own, but having a righteousness that comes from Christ, Right? Then he gets to the end of chapter 3, or in the, in the middle of chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained all this. I'm not there yet. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Tonight, my 
kind of final question for you is what is our response? What is our response to the cross? Do we need to repent of living our life as, our, as we're the king? We repent and submit to the true king. Do we need to rest in Christ as our deliverer? It is finished. We need to stop performing or pretending, but rest in the one who has paid your penalty. Do we need to pursue Christ the redeemer? The one who literally exchanges his righteousness into us for our sin. We pursue him by daily running to him. Listen, it's a good Friday. It's a good Friday. Chris and the guys, will y'all come back up here? Let's pray as we close out. God, we are so thankful for your message of the cross. God, we are thankful that when things seem out of control, uh, you've got it. God, we confess even this week. I confess even this week in my life, I've forgotten that. And God, I thank you for the reminder that you are sovereign even in the midst of chaos. God, I'm thankful for the reminder that you, um, you paid our price. We had a debt we could not pay and you, you paid it in full. God, I'm thankful that you blows my mind to think that you didn't just pay my, my penalty, but God, you make me holy and blameless. God, let, let that rest on us. The price for that was your son on a cross. God, we desperately need you. Teach us to live our lives in view of the cross, remembering the tremendous gift that you gave on that cross. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name.